0: heritage buildings are beautiful masterpieces. it's like, sure, they are. However, there's a huge realm of buildings that are not masterpieces that are actually just as important to the history of our cities and are so often overlooked, we forget that their stories are never told.
1: I'm John Lewis, and you're listening to 360 Degree City, a podcast where we talk to people who are working to make cities better. Our hope is that after each episode, you'll start to see your own city from a slightly different angle. What are some special heritage buildings in your city? Do any spaces in particular reflect important aspects of your city's history? A lot of the time, people think of heritage as something that relates to history long ago, highlighting how cities were in previous centuries. Do events and buildings of 30 years ago even count as heritage? I find heritage to be a fascinating and, I'll admit, sometimes confusing topic. So today I wanted to talk to some folks who have a deep understanding of the matter. So much so that they publish a magazine to tell stories of urban heritage through stunning archival images.
2: Megan Faulkner, I'm um, a director at Donald Luxton and Associates for a heritage consulting firm in Vancouver Um, and I'm also co-founder of Hindsight Magazine.
0: And I am RJ McCulloch, and I am exactly the same. Also, a director at <laughs> Donald Luxon Associates and the co founder of Hindsight Magazine.
1: For the first 15 minutes of the conversation, RJ, Megan, and I discussed the meaning of heritage and how it relates to our values. After that, we dive into Hindsight Magazine, RJ and Megan's annual print publication. We recorded this interview just before the magazine was released. This latest issue of Hindsight looks at major events that transpired in 1989 and how they impacted the cities where they took place. The magazine takes you from Beijing to Berlin, stopping in Toronto, Paris and San Francisco on the way. In our conversation, we talk about the key events that occurred in these cities back in 1989. So let's take a look back. How would you define heritage and you know those characteristics um, that's, that we might consider in our cities and our communities that are being historically significant or having heritage worth noting?
0: Heritage is a pretty difficult and very broad term to define, but at least what we understand is best practice today is recognizing those community values that that hold some importance to different community groups whether it is a tangible or intangible thing um, it's something that defines and connects people to place and, and ensures that there's a sort of there's this lineage between how we experience our neighborhoods today and how we h- experience them historically so it's it's maintaining that connection between the the present and the past and to ensure that we haven't forgotten where we've come from that's sort of just how we view heritage and it, it's again, it, it's very it's broad, it's open-ended, but it's something that we try and and keep pretty broad and open just so we don't forget things that's hmm. one of the maybe criticisms of um, sort of the earlier heritage planning efforts of the 70s and 80s where it was very strictly defined and it was very architecturally based and it was very European quote-unquote pioneer settler base from the here in the west coast the early 20th century mostly and so we have this layer of heritage that is very very um, closely defined as Edwardian era wood frame gave it buildings built between 1900 and 1920 say. so in the past you know 10 years or so it's really broadened and opened up so that we actually look at heritage as a much greater field of intangible qualities from different community groups that have been traditionally underrepresented in how we view heritage planning and so it's it's actually been really exciting the past number of years where we're sort of realizing that wow we were quite myopic as a field you know 30 40 years ago but we're trying to reconcile a few of those differences now
2: Mm -hmm. and it feels like the public is has more of an appetite for that definition of heritage also I can remember when we first started Working in the field, people would say, that's heritage, what are you talking about? It was, you know, it wasn't built that long ago. Um, But now we're seeing more recent places being recognized um, more formally like Vancouver Heritage Foundation does a Vancouver Special heritage tour, for example.
1: The Vancouver Special is a house style developed in the Vancouver area. The houses are two-story box-like structures with low roofs and balconies on the front of the house. With a practical and cost-effective layout, they were built by the thousands between 1965 and 1985.
2: When a number of years ago people would have said, you're crazy, there's no value in, in Vancouver specials, they're just big ugly buildings, when you know there actually is a really interesting history to them, and people are starting to value them more, and, it, and it's becoming more recognized. So yeah, that's been one of the best things about, um, about the field, working in the field in the past few years.
1: Hmm. And and I I you know I can. Having been involved in in projects that have um, a heritage aspect to them, you know, I I certainly you describing a certain mindset or a certain frame um, definitely resonates from the built perspective, but also typically um, who the heritage people in a community are. There's a particular demographic that uh, is represented in that. Um, So so I I can appreciate the the shift um, in telling different stories and looking at different built forms and things like that. I'm curious is as that shift has happened, um, just really specifically, has the language changed at all? Because I'm just wondering, you know, even as my understanding of heritage evolves over time, I still default back to your description, you know, sort of the Edwardian um, style and and those kinds of things. Has the language and how the conversation about uh, heritage changed over time as as the this kind of scope of the field has changed?
2: yeah I think it definitely has the the big shift has we've kind of defined as going um, from kind of architectural based as Rj said to values based and so um, values based is is talking about all the intangible values that contribute to a tangible place. So when we're dealing with, you know, our day jobs, we're working on heritage buildings, they're tangible places. Um, but we're not really talking all that much about tangible qualities. We're talking about intangible things. We're talking about what happened there, um, who the people were, what was happening in the neighborhood at the time. So I think the, you know, the the language has always been there, but it's, um, it's used more to describe an, a tangible place than, than it was previously when it was just, you know, this is important because it's an example of this type of architecture. We're talking a lot more about um, the social history and, um, you know, the, the kind of stories around what was happening there at the time. So I, I'm not sure it's so much the definitions, but it's just the use of words that weren't really used before to describe a place.
1: Mm, Okay. Cause yeah, cause oftentimes you can think about uh physical form as a manifestation of, uh, values and, and ideals over time. So, you know, the, the distinction of what's value, what's valued in a community that's really dense versus a suburban as one example. Um, but we, we had a, we had a previous, uh, a guest, an old, an old friend of mine, actually, that's, uh, uh, he's Métis and he's an architect and we were discussing issues around reconciliation, um, and how, uh, I framed it in a way I'd never thought of, you know, like uh, the residential schools, uh, the architects were the folks that executed a certain value set.
0: You know, the politicians may have had the ideas of assimilation, but the f- the, the people
1: who drew the, the infrastructure for that to happen were the architects yeah. uh, acting with no mm-hmm. personal agency. They were agents of the system uh, as as values change over time, particularly for really hard issues of how um, what we would <laughs> we would see in the present day as really horrible values in the history. How do you uh, address those issues um, and the shift away from, um, you know, certain value sets that are, that are hopefully not, if not eradicated, not widely is held, how do you reconcile or, or hold on or, or tell those stories uh, in a way um, through, through a community?
0: I think a lot of our recent efforts have been to invite those voices into the planning process Uh. we don't feel the most comfortable obviously telling their stories because we didn't live this history and Uh. you know it's not our story to tell so we we generally make the best effort we can to invite them into the process to make sure that they are able to tell the story in the way that they they feel most comfortable with and that they're able to to have the most bandwidth to tell it. And so we try and hold that space for them and and get them to use their own voice to tell their own story instead of us sort of just telling it the best we can, knowing that it's not our story to tell. Mm-hmm. We, we do... There are occasions where they the the voices aren't, you know, comfortable with with the process or aren't able to, to make it into the the planning scheme in which we, we you know, then we do have to do our best to based on our knowledge of history to just tell it the best we can. But there's I mean, with the reconciliation effort it does touch us in, in certain ways as well. And it's it's Challenging, Frankly, it's very challenging because again, it's not, you know, we don't have the best understanding of it because it's not our, our history, but you know, and there's so much to learn. There's, there's so much to understand and it's a very difficult topic, but you know, it's, it's part of our community history as not just a city province country, but like it, it is, has to be told. So there's, there's a huge mm. learning curve that we're kind of, still looking upwards toward, but, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to turn the ship and recognize that, you know, it's history, at least in Vancouver and BC didn't start in, you know, the late 1800s and there was nothing, you know, there's, there's, you know, it's starting with that simple recognition actually opens up a whole world of a whole different world of thinking about how we prepare documentation, because a lot of it, still, based on the rules from the national authorities, kind of just have this prescription where it says... This building started at this date. They don't really go back further than that. Mm-hmm. So it's having to introduce that extra layer of history. It's like, you know, there actually was a lot going on before this.
2: <laughs> and the municipalities themselves have come a long way mm-hmm. in the in the last few years as well. It used to be kind of a discussion between the city, the architect, and the planner, um, whether it's a consultant or a planner with the city. Um, and that's not the way it is anymore. It's um, a lot more of a collaborative Process, there's a lot more um, engagement at various levels, especially when the projects get larger, um, where there are a lot of different voices and a lot of different stories being told, and a lot of different, um, you know, they're open to interpreting things a different way. And um, I find that the community and the city alike are looking for new ways to tell those stories because that's really what heritage planning is. We're just storytelling. And um, it doesn't do anyone any good to um, wash over painful things. Mm -hmm. Um, There are a lot of great examples all over the world of uh, very painful places that have been recognized and preserved. um, Because it's not just about, you know, the good things that happened. It's remembering the painful things that happened as well. Um, and sometimes that means keeping the physical place. and sometimes it means getting rid of the physical place and um, interpreting what happened. You know it all depends on the um, on the people who who it affects the most. And I feel like the heritage planning has really, um, you know, we're, we're coming to grips with that and we're, we're trying to find new ways to, to tell those stories. So it's ever evolving, mm-hmm. um, which makes it complex and challenging, but also really rewarding as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, I bet. And it, it, it by by how you describe uh, the work that you do, it really sounds like uh, two important qualities of a heritage planner would be obviously curiosity and then humility, particularly particularly as you're trying to uh, integrate uh, other voices that aren't yours into into the the stories that you're weaving.
2: Yeah, I think that's very it's, accurate.
1: Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's very yeah. easy to find um, yourself in a
0: silo and become a historian for a very specific topic. And it's mm. we actually come up against that a lot with certain um, approval processes where it's, you know, someone knows a lot about a very certain strain of history. And that's really wonderful that they know that. But then, you know, then there needs to be that conversation about yet. Yes, there needs to be a little more open-mindedness around other facets of history. So, yeah, uh-huh. it's um, that humility factor is something that again is it's it's coming to light much more the past few years, which is refreshing. But traditionally, it was very much you know in a similar vein to only architecturally stunning buildings from the early 20th century are important. <laughs> you know, so now we're like, oh right, actually, there's a lot. I mean, that's that's a lot of what's Really inspired us to start the magazine. Actually, it was it was kind of a retaliation against the traditional fine grain heritage buildings. Are beautiful masterpieces. And it's like sure they are. However, there's a huge realm of buildings that are not masterpieces that are actually just as important to the history of our cities and are so often overlooked we forget that their stories are never told. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just, it's, it's something that we've been exploring through the magazine where it's kind of like those, those uglier facets of our history. (laughs) They're they're not so pretty. You know, we started with the viaducts in Vancouver and that was a very controversial decision to, to remove them whenever that's going to happen. Um, But we, you know, we kind of took the counter argument that we don't, think the viaduct should stay because they transport cars from point A to point B. That That's that's not exactly good for the city's history. However, they're the only tangible representation of the freeway fights that happened in Vancouver in the 70s. And if we lose those, are we going to forget that we had this freeway fight and that we became a 100% different city than, than we were going to be starting in the 60s and 70s? Like, mm-hmm. we you know, we did a little advocacy there saying, like, Well, you know, we're literally tearing down our history in front of our eyes, and I don't know if that's a benefit it's It's a benefit from re- removing and quote unquote eyesore, however, it is once again it's washing over a, an indeed painful part of our history in a very different sense of painful however <laughs> um it you know, it's something that deserves a second look instead of just the, the traditionally held value of planning, which is, you know, get rid of any sort of trans- or car infrastructure, which, again, from a transit perspective, we agree with. However, it's, you know, there's the heritage factor comes in and it's always complicates things. And, you know, that's just part of the the interest and curiosity around around what we do. Yeah
1: uh so with with the, the the magazine so you have your fully employed professionals with day with day jobs and you just <laughs> decide to start another mag- a magazine in your free time. Uh, what what in I, I think your, your story about the viaducts tells me a lot, but can, can you maybe talk about that process of of uh, broadly about why you decided to start a hindsight and what have been some of the most interesting or inspiring uh, aspects of that secondary project in addition to uh, to all the other things you do?
2: Um, yeah, so our, our day jobs are really, we're very lucky and uh, our work is really fascinating. Um, some of the best aspects of our day jobs is is when we start a project and, you know, someone might come to us and say, know, I have a heritage house, or I have a, an old house and I want to, you know, put an infill in the back, for example. Um, and so our work starts with, okay, let's, let's look into the history of this house and collect what we call the tombstone data. So, you know, when was it built? Who built it? uh, What was going on in the neighborhood at the time? And one of the best ways to figure out what was going on is to look through the archival images of that time period. And so we would start digging into um, the Vancouver archives, looking at at old photos. And in our searches, we would come across the most stunning images. Just, you know, Vancouver, we're really lucky here. The uh, City of Vancouver Archives... Has high res digitized photos that are completely accessible and that you know really easy to find, and we would come across images that just you know tell you such a story about what was happening at that at that moment. And we were just thinking, you know, we're kind of hemmed in um, in our day jobs looking at a specific place, but how could we open it up and share these images with other people? Um, you know, that really, they're really accessible, but no one knows that they're there. So we wanted an opportunity to show people what we were coming across every day and, and tell those stories. And so it kind of started out as looking at Vancouver, as RJ said, um, we were actually doing a project in the Chinatown area at the time. And we were looking, we were trying to find a photo of a specific building and we kept coming across all these images of the viaducts under construction and they were just photos that an engineer had taken and documented every single aspect of its construction. There's so many photos and they, you know, they weren't meant to be beautiful. Um, they were just meant to document what was happening. But we kept look, coming across them and looking at them and they just showed such an interesting kind of raw, beautiful, um, some might say, <laughs> look of the city and, uh, that, you, that you wouldn't go looking for, that you wouldn't normally see. And uh, so we thought that, you know, maybe we could actually look outside of just Vancouver and instead start looking at um, themes that, that different cities share. So the Vancouver viaducts issue came about because of um, this discussion of what to do with these, this raised infrastructure. And we realized, you know, a lot of cities have dealt with this. Um, A lot of cities had raised infrastructure that came about in the 60s and 70s or raised rail beds that came about in the early 1900s. And what did they decide to do with them? What are they doing with them now? Um, But I guess as an overarching view, hindsight developed because we just want to connect people to place. We want to tell stories. We want to do it through amazing photos we want to um, encourage a dialogue about not just about heritage but about um, you know how things repeat and what we learn about past events and how it impacts how our cities are built um, and you know have that discussion around um, the way our cities are changing and whether it be for for the better or not um, so we thought doing kind of thematic views would be a really interesting way to um, discuss kind of interesting timely topics.
1: Mm-hmm. That, uh, that's that's uh, super inspiring, and, and it it uh, rings a bit of a bell of why we're having this conversation on this podcast. We <laughs> similarly we were uh, we were you know had had a variety of different kinds of conversations in our in our day jobs, and uh, thought well that would be good if we could explore even more issues and aspects of cities and share that with more people. So uh, we got some we got some alignment here. This is great. Um, So you have uh, an upcoming issue, if I understand correctly, uh, honing in on a specific year of 1989. Um, So you focus on events that occurred in five cities, uh, Beijing, Toronto, Berlin, Paris, and San Francisco. Um, Can you maybe share what events occurred in these places in 1989 and and why why that was a a unique year that you you felt you wanted to to focus on?
2: Sure. We... uh... I guess it, the date itself kind of um, kind of presented itself in an interesting way because we'd been looking at our issue three was on postmodernism. So we were looking at a lot of 1980s architecture, um, which some hate and <laughs> I've actually come to love now because it was just so wild and, and yeah, wild and wonderful. Um, but, so a lot of photos from the 80s were coming up, and when we were writing our postmodern issue, we, um, there were a lot of political implications that led to postmodernism developing the way it did. And... We realized that you know even in our first issue when we were looking at urban infrastructure, those events those that led to those raised highways being built in the sixties and seventies they were tied by um, politics but also by time. So we were thinking, you know, instead of looking at just one topic, what if we looked at one date and um, looked at how it connected um, events across the world and. So there's some of our events in our, in these cities that we focus on are connected and some of them were, um, you know, happened because of natural disaster or, um, but yeah, we thought it was kind of an interesting take on, on the magazine was to, to look at a date instead of an issue and, um, and see what was happening in the world at that time.
1: Hmm. And then are there, are there any key themes that connect, uh, these, these events across these cities? There's a certainly a,
0: a political theme between them. There's a lot of, um, democratic movements, if you will. We look at the Tiananmen protests in Beijing, but we also look at the fall of the Berlin wall. And mm-hmm. so months apart, worlds apart, but you know, similar kind of winds of change, very different outcomes, obviously, but, Yeah. Uh, we we recognize that now that it's been thirty years since this has happened, it's you know, we if we generally recognize thirty years as a generation, we think it's a great time to be looking back and saying, Okay, what have we learned? Have we have we learned? And you know, they're actually based on current events, say in Hong Kong, I don't know if all of the world has learned from these Somewhat recent events, but again, now that it's been 30 years, it's okay. Maybe we need to really take stock of what happened and what, what lessons are there.
2: And Just, we're still talking about building walls in yep. 2019. Right? So yeah. it's, it's, right. you know,
0: <laughs> history tends to repeat itself. I guess that's why we'll be forever employed, but we'll see how <laughs> <it's> <laughs> <our> <laughs> career. <laughs> um,
2: Yeah, one of the most interesting, so obviously when we're talking about Beijing, we're talking about, um, we do talk about Tiananmen specifically, but the protests were happening across Beijing and also across 400 other cities in China. In China, the will of the people has been thwarted by the will of the people's government. It was late at night in Beijing, this morning, our time, when a divided leadership of the Communist Party finally decided it had had enough. The People's Army came face-to-face with the Chinese people
1: and was stopped in its tracks. The protesters sang patriotic songs and chanted slogans for freedom and
2: democracy. Um, But some of the most interesting um, things we've come across was that people were asking for political change in China and they didn't get it. Um, some say that, you know, China's actually become, um, tighter and more restrictive on its people. Um, but so it's it's failed to stimulate that major political change. Um, but the images that came out of what happened in Beijing in 1989 were really impactful on the rest of the world. So, you know, Someone in, in China today who may not have been born in 1989, um, were they to be shown the Tank Man photo that's become so famous, it's, you know, one of the most powerful images of the 20th century, they may not recognize it, they may not know um, what happened, but other parts of the world, those images were really powerful, and it's been argued that what happened in Beijing actually helped to precipitate the, um, the revolutions of 1989 in Eastern Europe, so um, mm. there was that impact, and, you know, Tiananmen is the largest public space in the world. It holds a million people. It's, you know, it's immense, um, and though the changes in Beijing following the, um, the massacre there weren't as tangible as they were in other cities. Um, that place holds, I mean, it's incredibly significant because of its ancient history, but because of its modern history and not just to people in China, but to to everyone else. Too. I mean, I went there in 2002 or three, I guess. And, um, you know, it's, it's an incredible feeling to stand there. It's just the scale of it is so massive. And so, yeah. you know, it's not something... Um, I was used to, especially coming from um, small town Alberta. You know, it just—it was just like it blew my mind. Um, but then also coming there with the knowledge of what had happened—that's very powerful. And uh, so, yeah, we thought that Beijing would be a really interesting city to look at in 1989. That was such a such a huge event and such a well known event across the world. Um, and we sadly couldn't find any. Available photos that we could use from 1989, specifically in Beijing, but uh, the photos that we did come across are so stunning uh, from the 80s and yeah, I guess mid 80s, early 80s mm-hmm. um, that are just candid shots of the city and of the and of the people and um, yeah, so that was that yeah, was a really right. we, fascinating
0: one. A little bit of haunting too to look at them yeah. and realize that just a few years later, you know this this horrible event would happen, but. Again, I mean, that's the whole point of our magazine is to sort of provide a bit more context around these events that are generally well-known, but there's... They're maybe not a lot of imagery around or just, you know, mm. just that extra bit of historic context that sort of shapes your understanding of, of a time and a place. And I think it's been, uh, we're, we inspire ourselves constantly with every different <laughs> issue, which is like, oh my gosh, I wish we could do this all day, every day, but <laughs>
1: alas, bills.
2: Like gets his
1: So what was happening in, uh, in Toronto in 1989 that... That that was worth uh, delving into. That was the
0: year that Skydome opened.
1: Tonight, we are going to celebrate. It is the opening of the world's first multi-purpose, state-of-the-art dome stadium with a fully retractable roof. Join us. We're on our way to the opening night celebration...
0: And we think most Canadians probably know what Skydome is. (laughs) If not, we shall find out. Um, We actually were interested to learn about it because, as we understood, it was sort of a precipitator to more of their lakefront development. And um, as we have mentioned, when we started looking at the gardener in our first issue, we sort of realized that Toronto has always and continues to work on their lakefront access issues. And, you know, they, they have a long way to go, but it keeps it interesting for sure over there. Um, <laughs> but we, we saw Skydome opening and that was sort of after the CN Tower, one of the major implications to show that there was a future in Toronto beyond its industrial transport oriented lakefront and it while there's a big argument Jane Jacobs made it probably the best saying how convention centers stadiums buildings like this are ultimately city killers because they're 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 large scale they just drain street life they're not exactly good building blocks for a city but in this case we see that actually maybe it was a, a pretty good Indication of what Toronto could be, because it it sort of precipitated the the development that happened called City Place, which is still being built uh-huh. around around the area and it's you know sometimes you need to make these bigger grand gestures to actually get people to understand that there is a future neighborhood that there is again that alternative where it's not exactly readily available because it essentially it was a wasteland up until until the 70s, 80s and then like oh now it's a high rise neighborhood it's certainly been argued that that high rise neighborhood has some issues in and of itself but again is it better to have that or you know fallow land that's not doing anything for anyone mm-hmm, for sure, so for sure. you know it's it's kind of an interesting thing we also look at in in Skydum's history the whole idea of publicly funded stadiums and other large scale buildings like that and saying well again generally these turn out to be total boondoggles that are just public nightmares because the, the budgets go from you know 100 million to 2 billion in in two months and then it's just like well, why did we sign up for this but <laughs> again sometimes it actually turns out pretty well skydome i think is a good indication or a good example of how you actually build a city around it and not just sort of plunk it down somewhere surrounded by a sea of parking lots and say like great we're done moving on and you know yeah. then it then it eventually in 25 years is too old to be the flashiest fanciest stadium doesn't get those corporate contracts and then it just you know eventually has to get demolished and it's uh, we see that time and time again in the u.s especially but um it seems like yeah, Skydome might have a bit more staying power hopefully
1: yeah yeah it's it's interesting on a on a personal note next year will mark the completion of a a multi-year project with a a planner friend of mine to see every major league baseball park and so and so oh we've uh God. you know and i used to go to school in toronto i've been there a bunch of times um to the skydome but it's uh, it's interesting to observe the evolution of baseball stadiums in particular where you have uh the wrigley fields and the and the fenways that are in the fabric of a community built in 1914, 1918, how it moves then to the, the, the giant stadium with the parking lot that most of them are gone. Um, and then how it kind of came full circle, like Skydome was the, the first Of kind of new era ballparks, but it was, it's kind of like in between the, the big massive thing that stands on its own or being integrated into the fabric of a city. Um, it, and it, and it, it definitely is a marker. And then when Baltimore built, uh, their stadium that marked a a new stage of evolution where they're really quite thoughtful in terms of how do we integrate this into the fabric of a city without being this boondoggle from a, from an urban life perspective. Uh, and then the, and then we'll see where, it all evolves because the latest uh, stadium uh in the major leagues was atlanta i think that was two years ago and they're way they hell out in the suburbs and they have built a town center around it but it's not in the central part of the city so it's uh it's been really interesting from uh from an I'm, I'm actually a pretty passive baseball fan i just like going to baseball games and having beer and hanging out but it's uh from an urban nerd perspective it's been really interesting to see uh how these places fit and skydome is a bit of an anomaly because it kind of sits in between eras of of urban development
0: yeah, I mean, I, we, we think it's aged quite gracefully as well. I mean, when you look at it from the outside, it doesn't exactly look like it's 30 years old already, and it's just yeah. the technology was quite advanced for the day, and it's just mm-hmm. it's you know, we again, we hope it sticks around for a while because, you know, enough money was spent on it. And you know, it, it's just and the it's fact, a landmark. Yeah, exactly. The yeah. fact that we still call it SkyDome and not Rogers Place, I think is also very telling.
1: I know that's that's an important distinction I make with people who call it that I say, don't you mean Skydome? I don't think anyone's really keen yeah, to call yeah, it. Wrong. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And personally, again, it'll always hold a special place. I hope it's there forever because I saw my beloved Saskatchewan Rough Riders win a great Cup there, so it's all good for me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So, so you, you touched on on Berlin, and I think that's obviously 1989 in Berlin is a is a pretty well known um, uh, monumental year for for that city and that that part of the world.
2: These are the sights and sounds of the continuing celebration
1: of Germans about the symbolic tearing down of the Berlin Wall. What about Paris and then San Francisco? What what was going on in those cities that uh, that really drew you?
0: Uh, Paris was really interesting. We we actually just touched on it on our first issue not knowing that we would do it here in issue 4 but it was um the president Mitterrand instituted a project called the Grand Projet, which was just this big architectural campaign of building these huge public works that would sort of redefine the face of Paris and sort of, in his mind, bring France back to greatness. And it was certainly a lofty goal there. But, um, his view is that through these wonderful architectural projects that Paris would sort of shine brightly again. And that like, you know, after most cities in the sixties and seventies suffered through some challenges, whether it was suburbanization or just a lack of investment. So, I mean, it seemed like it was coming at a good time to reinvigorate the, the urban landscape of Paris. And so eight architectural commissions were a part of the program, even though a few of them were started with his predecessor, he doesn't exactly make make that clear, but it's pretty clear in the history of books now. Um, Funny how that works. Yeah, right? interesting how it sort of becomes the. This was my idea. Uh, well, this was always my idea, even though it was already under construction. Um, we see the the Louvre Pyramid is probably the most well known. Uh, project that came about with this program and I.M. Pei designing that in the early 80s and finally completed in 89.
1: So the Louvre pyramid was completed in 1989 to mark the bicentennial of the French Revolution of 1789. It was designed by Chinese-American architect I.M. Pei and commissioned by the then French president uh, François Mitterrand.
0: This was a hugely controversial project, and it was really, really maligned most Parisians' view of outside architects and, and said, like, what are you doing to our beloved Louvre? Like, I cannot believe you're just positing this horribly contemporary glassy thing in the middle of this grand court. And, you know it took a while for Parisians to kind of change their attitude and recognize that, okay, this is actually kind of nice, you know, and it's, it's been 30 years. It's not like it's gone away. So I guess it's about time to recognize, yeah, it's not such a bad addition, but yeah. Um, it was, you know, interesting just to read about how Mitterrand really wanted something to be memorable, to be a landmark and, he essentially self-selected I.M. Pei and said, you do it. You're good at this, you know? And, mm. you know, again, the Parisians, architectural credits, a lot of people were just saying, like, I cannot believe you're doing this. But then we look again, like we looked at postmodernism in issue three, like the, this political era of, you know, it's it was a really interesting time in the 80s when you're kind of moving away from that traditional mindset of modernism as was understood through the whole post-war era to this sort of you know more futuristic outlook where it was like you know ooh glassy flashy you know like not not traditional in any sense of the word and and sort of, you know pushing the envelope essentially and so we wouldn't call the Louvre pyramid postmodern. It's, we would just call it, I think contemporary, but it is such a grand gesture that like, if you've been to the Louvre, you'll always remember that that was there. And again, Mm. it's like skydome. It's like, it doesn't exactly look 30 years old. It's aged pretty well. And, um, some of the other projects, there's the grand arch in La Défense, which is sort of a contemporary iteration of the Arc de triomphe. And, um, again, kind of, not so understood like why did you build another arch in the you know almost suburban part of the city and there's a lot of reasons why there's the the danish architect had to resign and it's just you know there's all these you could write a book I'm, there have been books written on this I think in fact um this is this whole architectural program but you know we what we kind of had to go up to a higher level and recognize that World leaders have been doing this for a very long time. I mean, even in Paris, you look at Napoleon and his monuments, and it's just, it's this legacy-building campaign of Mm -hmm. governments. And it's just, you know, this has been going on forever. This is kind of just an interesting way to look at, like, oh, this was still going on in the 80s, really? Wow. You know, and it's, like, I can't believe we spent so much public money doing this, which is essentially just to make sure that Mitterrand was never forgotten, you know? (laughs) Mm -hmm. But... You know these the what was actually produced for that program they're really great spaces they're very they're good urban city building um, spaces that ultimately did contribute to the public sphere of paris and again they've almost all aged quite gracefully and they're they're quite lovely and is it such a bad thing that we kind of spent a lot of money on someone's vanity project? I don't know, you know?
1: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And I think that that's the, your, uh, you know, when you, when you talk about the complexity of your work and then the complexity of city building and, and just to be able to, uh, consider hold potentially two things in tension, the, but you know, they, they may not be mutually exclusive at the, at the end of the day, you know, so if someone has a really big ego and they want to push something forward. If you can steer it in the right direction that it a long term public benefit, then you, you know it's something to be leveraged.
0: Exactly, <laughs> exactly. We, that's what we think will hopefully happened in Paris. We obviously, not living there, don't know that the true yeah. reaction to this, but from the outside looking in, we say our, our viewpoint is like, eh, you didn't do so bad, all things considered. And so, from a heritage
2: yeah. planning perspective, like, best practice now is when you're making contemporary additions to a historic building, is you want to make the addition. Compatible with, distinguishable from, and subordinate to the historic building. And I think that I.M. Pei's pyramid is actually, you know, he's, he did a really good job. Yeah. It, it works well, but I'm sure there are some Parisians who would disagree still, but I'm sure.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Well, that that level, the the three three point uh, criteria, I've I've never heard it articulated that way. That's super helpful for, um, you know, just even conversations I have either professionally in our engagement practice or just with grumpy relatives or whatever that just basically are like, well, it doesn't look exactly the same as the building that it came from. So it's a failure
2: (laughs) uh, that's our biggest defense when it comes to what we call faux heritage which is just um building houses mainly that you know are replicas of of what was happening at um you know at the time its neighbors were built which you know it we want our historic buildings to be authentic we want to be able to walk down the street and be able to tell what's old what's new um yeah. because they're records of their time. They they're reflective of when they were built. And um it's important, even if you don't know anything about architecture or about heritage, to be able to walk down a street and and kind of identify um, you know, what was happening in the city at, at that time because the architecture reflects it. And so yeah, we like to use those those three points uh from the standards and guidelines to um to defend contemporary editions, for sure.
1: Mm-hmm. And then the the last city in your 1989 um, edition, I am guessing that this is related to some natural events rather than political. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so <laughs> the, uh, the earthquake in San Francisco um, mm. in October of 1989. Now our power has been off. For almost 15 minutes, and the reason, if you do not know by now, was a major earthquake, an earthquake which was felt from Oakland to Sacramento as far south as Los Angeles. We have reports of major power outages in San Francisco and reports throughout the Bay Area. There's also major damage in San Benito County. It was devastating, and, and some of the biggest um, effects around the Embarcadero Freeway. Mm-hmm. Um, and San Francisco is really interesting, as as most people know, had a devastating earthquake in 1906 as well. Um, one of the, one of the interesting things that we came across in our research was that a year previous, 1905, the city had hired an architect to uh, do a municipal plan for them, and it basically involved redesigning uh, the streets and the city to make it more beautiful and more scenic. And then this earthquake occurred, and a lot of people were killed, and a lot of um, of buildings came down. And instead of kind of going full tilt and using that new plan, um, the city chose speed over beauty, basically, and decided just to build the city back up um, in the same place it had been, um, specifically the downtown, like just build things up as quickly as possible because they didn't want to lose pace with um, what was happening in other parts of the West Coast. They didn't want L.A. to catch up to them. San Francisco was a huge um, center at that time. And so they they just said, let's just go for it. Let's just build as quickly as we can and get back in business. Um, so in 1989, um, when the earthquake struck, um, it kind of gave the city the opportunity to um, change some of the things that had happened. They didn't make that decision in 1906, but they did make it in 1989. So this freeway had uh, long been an eyesore in the city, Um, and it was originally supposed to be a lot longer than it was, but because of the Freeway Rebellions in the 1950s, it was actually cut short, so it was just kind of, they called it this, this little stub freeway, uh, double-decker freeway. And so it was severely damaged and closed, and um, so advocates for its removal started voicing their, their concerns again that it should be removed and that a surface road should be put in its place. Um, but what's interesting now is when you when you read articles about it, it's like, oh yeah, that was a no brainer. Tear it down, put this this surface road in with streetcars and plant it with palm trees, which is what ended up happening. Um, but when you go back to the to the record of the time, to the newspapers uh, that were coming out in in October November of 1989, um, the community was really. St- strongly advocating for them to be either fixed or torn down and replaced exactly as they were because there was a lot of concern about losing business from all the traffic that was coming in uh, specifically to Chinatown at the time. and. Um, They were bringing up this vote that had happened in 1986, where I think the mayor at the time had a cake constructed, uh, a 64-foot-long cake or something, of the Embarcadero Freeway, and she smashed it with a mallet to show how much she hated the freeway. And there was a lot of support for that action. So they said, you know, let's take this vote to the people in 1986. Let's let's decide if we're going to raise this freeway or not. And they were shocked that the community voted two to one to keep it, and they thought, "Oh, that's you know, it's not what they were expecting at all." And uh, it turns out that it, it came out of this fear of a loss of business, but also um, skyrocketing property values and uh, they were worried that there was a you know some collusion going on with environmentalists and and downtown property owners and um so the the story around it is actually a lot more interesting than kind of the um surface level research would would indicate um but fortunately they did decide to remove it and and now that area of san francisco It's incredible that the views of the waterfront aren't blocked anymore, which, you know, a lot of people say is a cardinal sin in San Francisco. Don't block the views of the water. So why would they put a a double-decker freeway there in the first place? But um, so so the result is that they were kind of given a second chance to to change what had happened, um, what they built in the 60s and 70s as a result of, of the earthquake
1: huh I, I i think it's it's well i know it was the same the same earthquake but i think it was called the central freeway also vanished as a result of the, of the um of the earthquake and uh an area called hayes valley um which have been around it's it's um kind of emerged and was revitalized as as a result and i was there hmm, this is now six seven years ago and there you, there was still elements of it like the off-ramp was still there it was slated for development but they had turned that space into um kind of like an urban farm for the temporary use, which was really cool and and um but again, you know like that was in you know 2013 or something like that and the earthquake was in 1989 and just just the uh, uh, yeah when you're when you're in the city building business your your concepts of time is are very warped with compared to the rest of the world
2: <laughs> and I know there was a lot of that, that actually came up back in the I think it took a year for them to decide to tear down um, the freeway and then you know a while longer to decide that they weren't going to rebuild it um, but that was a big concern was people were saying you know it doesn't reflect well in the city to have this kind of hulking remnant of this failure basically mm-hmm. sitting there and you know not being used it, it kind of indicated that san francisco wasn't completely you know back or back in business so um yeah it is interesting to have those reminders and what they kind of um what message they're giving to to the outside world. I was actually Mm -hmm. in San Francisco a few years ago as well. And Hayes Valley is like, it's such an incredible neighborhood. And yeah, yeah, it's interesting to think what, um, what, might have been if that earthquake hadn't happened.
1: Yeah. And it's one of those, like, you know, as you've been speaking about with, with the magazine of, of the, the advantage of imagery and pictures and, you know, it's, it's one of those things now, you know, as a, as a first timer to Hayes Valley a a few years ago, um, you know, you couldn't conceive of a free double decker freeway going through the middle of it. So you need to look at a picture and go, Oh my God, this lovely urban open space was not this lovely urban open space always. <laughs> okay. So we have uh, one, one last question for you that uh, we ask everybody that, that comes on the pod. Um, can you each share a city that you love and why you love it? Oh my gosh. I got mine already. You do? I do.
2: Do you want to go first? Sure.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, Tokyo, for sure. All right. It is... I've been there a few times now, and every time I go back, I just remember why it's my favorite. It's because it is the most surprising city I've ever been to. As mm-hmm. the largest city in the world, I would have never imagined it is the most peaceful, relaxing, like, totally easygoing city I've ever been to. Like, that, I go there for, you know, to, to unwind, and it's just... I would have never imagined such a immensely scaled city would offer so much just like just my breath of fresh air really because I think they they plan their neighborhoods so well because they from what I understand it's a general lack of planning it's somewhat hands-off and their their zoning is not so rigid and and fixed it's actually it's more Use based and and it's as long as things are somewhat complementary to each other and don't really antagonize one another. Like, sure, do it. You know, and it's just it's it's shocking for for me to go there and recognize that this is such a livable, relaxing, lovely city, and yet it's the population of Canada in one little <laughs> space. You know? just, how, how does this? Yeah. happen? And it's just it's just I love it. It's such such a wonderful place
1: amazing uh yeah tokyo and in japan in general i have uh yet to go to and it is the absolute top of my must go to list so thanks for adding to that
2: <laughs> oh sad how am i supposed to follow that <laughs> uh, i guess the first place that comes to mind for me is amsterdam um and I guess it's because I, I again it was I was surprised I I wasn't expecting it to be the way it was. You kind of you know you grow up hearing the stories about free and crazy Amsterdam, but that's not what I experienced. My experience was this kind of liberal, tolerant, beautiful, engaged place with um, you know really well laid out the, with the canals and and the bridges and. Um, but I guess it was more a feeling. I mean, the architecture is stunning, obviously, and and the way that the canal architecture evolved is really, really wonderful. But I guess it was more of a feeling that um, I guess it's one of the only cities I've ever been to where I thought I could stay. You know, just send uh, my yeah. things, and, and I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sticking here. Um, and I can't really put my finger on why, but um, yeah, it was one of the only places where where I felt that.
1: The waning days of the 1980s was a dynamic time in many cities around the world. The events explained in this episode give a glimpse into life in 1989 as experienced through triumphs, horrors, and everything in between. And though it may not feel like so long ago, the events that transpired a generation ago is an important part of our global heritage. I appreciate RJ and Megan's passion and critical analysis of heritage planning. Their magazine is really a work of art, so if you'd like to have a more visual understanding of 1989, pick up a copy of the latest Hindsight magazine. It's sold in Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, London, Manchester, Berlin, and Munich. and You can learn more about the magazine and order it online at HindsightMag.com. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to go off and listen to some Bobby Brown, Fine Young Cannibals, and maybe some Paula Abdul. 360 Degree City is created by our team at Intelligent Futures. To learn more about the work we do, go to intelligentfutures.ca. I'm John Lewis. Thanks for stopping by.